Well, we're in a sermon series called Don't Move the Lamp Stand. And just by show of hands, how many of you have been kind of hanging with us in this series? Have you seen at least one or two of these? All right, look at the consistency. I love that. Um, this series is interesting. We've, we've averaged over 1,000 views online uh, per message, which, which is strange because, you know, if you're going to be real markety, you usually don't say, don't move the lamp stand. That'll just bring them in, right? It, it's just, what does that mean? But people, I think it, it hits a nerve, you know, like we've all had bad church experiences, difficult church experiences. We've all had a love and a lost relationship with the church. So we're, we're really asking, what is the purpose of the church? So here's the recap for the, the two people who have not uh, been with us. Uh, recap, the church exists to show people who Jesus Christ is. And way back in Exodus 25, we're given the picture of the tent of meeting. This is the place where Moses was told to construct a worship, uh, portable worship tent where God's presence would dwell with the priests of God's people, the Israelites. And in the tent, there's some special furniture. There's a table made of acacia wood, all adorned with gold. And on the table, the bread of the presence is to be put. And the bread is to symbolize God's provision for people, that God's going to meet the needs of his people, even in their wandering in the desert, just like he's going to meet your needs and mine. And that he really is with, not just meeting needs, but with us in a tangible way. Jesus Christ would later come and say, I'm the bread. This whole bread thing in the Jewish faith, it's me. I'm God in the flesh. I'm here to be with you, to meet your needs. I'm the bread of life. I'm, I'm sustaining you at every moment. It's a radical claim. He's either telling the truth, or he's the most efficient manipulator of human history, or he's absolutely insane to, to say that that's what it all points to. And then John, the Apostle John in Revelations, later would write a letter based on a vision he had, an encounter with Jesus to seven churches. And in that letter in Revelations, John would say, speaking on behalf of Jesus, would relay a message and say, effectually, you're doing okay, but don't lose the main focus. John, you see, would equate the lampstand in the tent. There was a lampstand pointing on the bread, illuminating the bread, as the church. He would say the local church of Jesus Christ is essentially that lampstand that symbolically was in the tent pointing to the symbolic bread. And so the church exists to shine the light on Jesus. And when it gets all sidetracked and does all sorts of weird other things, even good things, but not eternal, ultimate Jesus things, then we're actually moving the lampstand. And John would go so far as to say, if you don't get this part right and shine the light on Jesus, I'm going to remove the lampstand. And so we want to be very careful about our purpose here. And so in light of this metaphor, we have been looking back at the early church. The book of Acts is written by Luke. Luke was a physician by training and trade. He wrote one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he went on, and after he wrote the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And in the chapter, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of, of the book of Acts, it's like an action film. It just bursts on the scene. The Holy Spirit comes and fills the hearts of the believers. They start speaking in languages where all this multicultural gathering understands in their own foreign language what the message is. And it's so confusing for a minute that a few skeptics are like, are these people all really drunk? And then Peter gets up. And I've never had to start a sermon by explaining that what's happening here isn't drunkenness, but that's kind of how he starts. He goes, no, they're not drunk. 
And then he jumps into a sermon, and the sermon effectually brings 3,000 people who were not convinced Jesus was the bread of the presence, who were not convinced this Messiah who died and reportedly rose again was the guy into belief. And they signed up, and they wanted to be part of the following Jesus movement. 3,000 people in a sermon. And then we are given some interesting information in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, we're given essentially what they did. What do you do with 3,000 plus people who are all going to follow Jesus? Acts 2.42 says the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. And so it's been a bit repetitive in this series because I think it's worth looking repeatedly at this entry point in the book of Acts because it changed all of human history. And we're here 2,000 years later talking about it. And so today, I want to ask this question. What is Christian community? The word in Greek, the New Testament's written in Greek, is koinonia. When my wife and I were newly married, we were living in Los Angeles, California. We were managing a 22-unit apartment building for graduate seminary housing at Fuller Seminary. And when you're a seminary and you have like 10 or 12 apartment units, you name each of them Greek and Hebrew words, because that's what you do when you're a theological seminary. So our little apartment was Beth Rahim. In Hebrew, that means house of friends. And for the most part, that was true. It was a little wild and crazy, but we were house of friends. Uh, and then there was the other complex next to us. We had 22 units. They had 198 they were massive. They were noisy. On garbage day, for one brief hour, everything was orderly, but then all the garbage got piled up in the dumpsters, children running crazy. Now, keep in mind, they're all seminary students and their families, but it was crazy. Do you know what they called the most messy, crazy, smelly, loud, intense, high-density housing unit at Fuller Seminary. Do you know what? Out of all the wonderful biblical names one might pick, they call it koinonia. Koinonia. So, so this sermon's hard for me because it's essentially a word study on this, and I need to rebrand in my mind koinonia as a good thing, but every time I look at the word, I, I go, ooh, because I had to walk through the gateway and walk through this whole complex to get to class because I was usually running a little late. This is you know, before I had spent much time in the military, I wasn't very responsible with time management. And, and I just remember, like, trying not to step on children, and it was crazy. But that's not what we read about in Acts 2.42. It's better than that. It's messy, but it's better than that. So I'm actually going to do something that I remember my seminary professor said, don't ever do. He said, don't do a word study sermon. Don't just, like, talk about what one word means. Because your only motive for doing that would be to sound like you're smarter than you are. And you're going to bore people and shrink your church. So don't do it. <laughs> you were warned. The, the exits are co-located there. We are going to break the rules today because I do think it, it's, it's just worth it for this. What is Christian community? We're going to look at different shades. Language is a funny thing, right? Christianity, more than any other movement on planet Earth, has shaped language. It really has. That's, a, that's not even a debatable thing. And so we had this form of Greek in the ancient world that was widely spoken, that kind of connected most of the ancient world because Alexander the Great um, tried to take over the whole world and made all these inroads, and he made this language, Greek, 
popular as the common language, much like today, English is really the most common universal language. And so you had this Greek, but it wasn't the pretty Greek that Alexander spoke. It had de-evolved into what is called Koine Greek. Koine means common Greek. So don't be impressed by pastors who know Koine Greek. We don't know classical Greek, which is much more difficult. We know Koine Greek, which is like, hey, yo, what's up? We cool? It's full of all of those. It's just very utilitarian language. And by the way, as a side note, don't ever be impressed with my language skills because I write my sermons with my buddy from seminary who is a professor there now. He went on to get a PhD and he knows Greek better than I know English and Hebrew. So it's not, it's, I've forgotten most of it, but he reminds me of, of what I need to know. And, and common Greek was interesting because it had this term for community called koinonia, but it was a really uh, versatile term. And then the Jesus movement came on the scene and it captured that one word and it redefined it. I mean, it essentially just meant like group of people or gathering. A place where like people have some stuff in common. That's what koinonia means. But that's not what koinonia means. You, you see this, it, the, the apostle Paul, when he wrote his pastoral letters to the churches he planted, he, try, he brings this out. And I'd like to show you an example. He, writing to the church in Corinth that he planted, he is writing, and this is incredible too, and it's just more evidence of how powerful the Jesus movement is, the gospel of Jesus is. He plants the church in the most carnal, crazy, Las Vegas version of the ancient world, Corinth. They're a, they're a port city. Like a lot of port cities, they get rowdy. They had a lot of money. If you think like we have slid into immorality as a country or whatever, like we have nothing on ancient Corinth. They were crazy. They were wild. And he convinced a bunch of Corinthians that didn't even know anything about Judaism that God was intervening in human history and he came in the form of Jesus Christ. And they, and they became so convinced that they changed their way of life and they're doing life together. And now he's writing, he would write four letters to them. We, we lost one and three, we or two and four, and we have first and second Corinthians. And so the second Corinthians letter that we have in verse uh, chapter eight, verse four, he writes something that, that is just astonishing begging us with much urging for the favor of koinonia in support of the saints. He's writing to people who are basically having a conversation about money, and he's talking about one poor group of Christians and another poor group of Christians, and how the first poor group of Christians wants so much to be able to have the privilege to give their money to help the slightly more poor or maybe not slightly more poor group of Christians thrive that they were begging Paul for the privilege of koinonia. So he uses a term that just means community and he redefines the term. You can almost see in the language he's searching for like, how do I even describe what is happening here? I'm writing this letter and I'm just telling you on the topic of generosity they're begging me for the koinonia, for the privilege of, of participating and providing. And, and I'm like, you don't have any money to give. But I guess if you really want to give some money, because you see that sacrificial generosity is part of this amazing community that is found in Christ. And so he uses the term koinonia. So if you were to read that and you're trying to do a little archaeology and language, you would just assume, oh, koinonia, according to the Apostle Paul who wrote that letter, means 
the privilege of giving money when you really don't even have much to give. It's just a money thing. And, and the, the implication of that is imagine for a moment the type of community that shares their resources like, like we're all in the family, like you're in the family. You're not related to each other, but you just share. You've probably had glimpses of this, right? Where you fall in with people who you're not blood related to, but you're just so tight that when the check comes, it's almost laughable. I was out to dinner with a buddy of mine recently, and I mean, we've been through thick and thin together. And I was feeling kind of down. And the check came, and we were encouraging each other. And I knew he'd try to pay for it. And he knew I'd try to pay for it. But you see, we've been friends since we were in eighth grade. And there's just this general sense that if you needed all my life savings tomorrow, it's yours. And vice versa, because we're just, he's the closest thing I have to a brother. I have two sisters, biologically. That's kind of the community that, that when Jesus is at the center, when you're shining the light on Jesus and you're doing life together, that has the possibility of evolving. Now, let's not be idealistic, right? We, if you read through the whole book of Acts, they have fights, they have dysfunction. I mean, it's not like they were the perfect church. A lot of us, we try to find the perfect church. We're always looking for the perfect church. We move from this church to that church to this church to that, and we're like, why can't I find the perfect church? Do you, do you know why? Because you join. And every time you join, you make it imperfect because you're not perfect, right? Don't find the perfect church because you're not perfect. And even if you found the perfect church, you'd make it imperfect by you being there. That's not a dig on you. That's just reality check for everybody. There's no perfect church, not here nor in the book of Acts, but there is the possibility of a type of koinonia, a type of community that is so tight, they share like it's all in the families. You'll notice it in the pronouns if you ever find a community like that. If we ever become a community like that, I think we're well on our way. It will be a lot of R, O-U-R. A lot of we's. A lot less me, a lot less I. And the four-letter word used by the seagulls in Finding Nemo, that's almost going to become a swear word in these type of communities. Mine? Mine? Mine, 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 mine. You haven't seen that movie? That is funny. That's where you laugh, right? Mine. <laughs> and, and, you know, it starts in those three rooms over there in kids' ministry, doesn't it? Why do we always say, please get engaged with our kids? Because have you noticed that small people have a propensity to act like those little seagulls? Mine, mine. That's mine. It's my toy. It's not her toy. It's my toy. I mean, that's what they do. And occasionally you get a, a little one who just has a generous heart. But, you know, it's still in them. And we want to be a church where it's ours. And, and that's exactly what happened. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week because it goes on in the book of Acts to say they shared all things in common as they have needs. And what is that about? And is this socialism or Marxism? We're going to talk about that next week, and that'll be fascinating. But, but just as a preview Imagine a community that shares like they're all in the family. Koinonia had a money component in the de definition, but it, it didn't stop there. If you were trying to figure out what this word means, community, in the context of the book of Acts, you could say this. 
imagine a community that it's more, but it's not less intimate than friendship. It's more intimate than friendship, but it's not less. Where am I getting that? 2 Corinthians 6, 14. In the same letter, Paul is writing to this church in ancient Las Vegas, essentially. And they're asking questions of the wisdom of marrying people outside of their tribe. They're confused, right? Because Paul's basically saying, in Christ, all these division lines have fallen away. So you don't have to say, like, Team Vikings, Team Packers. You could, like, in theory, marry a Packers fan. I know that's hard to hear, but you could. He's saying stuff like that to them, but then he's following it up by saying, but be careful when it comes to Jesus being at the center of your life, be careful if you marry someone who is antithetical in their thinking to that, who doesn't want Jesus in their life at all, doesn't want Jesus in your life, that's not going to go very well. Because if the purpose of your life is to shine the light on Jesus Christ and the most intimate partnership in life, marriage, is a, a union with someone who wants nothing more than to turn that light away, that's not going to work out well. He says it this way. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what koinonia have righteousness and lawlessness. And that sounds judgmental, but again, this is ancient Las Vegas. Like what would be normal moral living according to someone who is not following Christ in that city would be just absolute craziness, like a lot of illegal stuff in today's culture. And he's saying, so what koinonia does righteousness, people who are growing in righteousness in Christ, have to do with lawlessness, the culture around you? Or what koinonia has light with darkness? So if we're a language professor at this point, we would be looking now and be like, well, I thought it meant money. I thought it was the privilege of giving and sharing all these things together. I thought that's what community meant. But then all of a sudden... I came across in the very same letter by the very same author this idea that, no, it's, it's something that's very intimate, almost as intimate as a marriage. So, so the word is able to be used to describe the bond between a husband and a wife? What? How are we all going to be married to each other? This is not advocating sister wives or, you know, you know polygamy or anything like that. But, but it is saying that there needs to be a connectedness. And we feel it in friendship, but it needs to be something even more. A devotion to one another that goes deeper than the world's version of friendship. The world's version of friendship is something like this. I like basketball, and you do too? Awesome. Now I can spend time with another person and talk about basketball with them because I like basketball. I don't, but you know what I mean? You find somebody and you go, aha, you're into that too. And friendships in the world are fun and they're nice and there's nothing wrong with them. But do you notice that it's very rare for friendships to develop apart from Jesus communities between people who have very little in common, who have different ages, who grew up in different generational cohorts, who hold some different political views, who come from different backgrounds. Now, I mean, it happens, but that's the exception Certainly not the rule. When Jesus is being shined on by the, the lamp that is the church, when he's the focus, there is a uniting effect that makes intimate friendship work with people who have no logical reason to be friends apart from that. Some of my best friends are in their 70s and 80s. That's weird. 
It's super weird. I mean, if I were to just say that on YouTube or meet somebody who didn't know Jesus and, and be like, oh, I just can't wait to hang out with my best buddy, one of my best buddies who's 74. He'd be like, aren't, aren't, what are you, like 38? Why? Because he, he radiates Jesus to me. And I feel closer to Jesus when I'm with that person. And, and here's why I think this works. When we mutually have come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord, there's been a few prerequisites that have had to happen. One, I've had to say, I've done my best at trying to be my own boss and Lord and Savior and clean my life up and be perfect and live by this ethical standard and feel like I've, I'm great and I'm an epic failure at it. I can't do it on my own. So I need the intervening, forgiving love and the leadership of God himself who came for me in Jesus Christ. I have nothing to offer Jesus as payment. I just, just surrender my life to him and try to be guided. You see when that's the starting point? Don't you think it makes sense now that people from different backgrounds, different preferences just have a mutual affection. We, we have a meeting after church, uh, me and a uh, member of our board and a few other people uh, with Oasis de Vida. They're our sister partner church. They meet here. Um, they're just dear people. And my Spanish is muy mal. It's just not good. It's just, I, you know, for a while I thought I was good at Spanish. And then I started to try to speak it on a consistent basis around people who actually speak Spanish. And you can kind of tell I'm not very good at Spanish, right? So we have a translator. And what are we talking about after, after church, this meeting with them? Essentially, they're, they're having some problems paying the rent. They pay us a little bit of rent to use our facility three days a week. And we're just going to tell them, whatever you can afford is fine. And don't, don't pay anything for January. We just love you guys, and we just want you to thrive. And, and here's the weird thing. We don't really know them that well. We don't speak the language. There's like one of us in both organizations that's perfectly fluent in both of those languages, and ne neither of whom are the primary points of contact. But we did baptisms with them last year, and we have these fun and a little bit awkward barbecues with them <laughs> because they can't really talk to us. <laughs> Most of us can't talk to them. They're much better at cooking than us. So we just eat all their food and, and they, just like, they just like pretend to nibble at ours. And like probably afterwards, like that was rough, you know, like, yeah, right? Um, but we really like them and I can't imagine them leaving the church. And so, you know, the board talked and when they said we're having a hard time paying rent, it's just like, oh, for the koinonia, the privilege of providing a, a need for you because we're the same in Christ. And, and this is more intimate than friendship, but it's not less than friendship, even with the language barrier. And this is what happened. And this is what is happening. And this is koinonia. Fourthly, imagine a community that is fueled and united by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was funny, in the ancient world, when... These followers of Jesus, they, they weren't even called Christians yet. That happened several decades later. They got like a title. Initially, Christians was meant to be kind of a demeaning title. But these Christians, who didn't even really have a name for themselves, 
they would get together and they would have something that an ancient historian described as a love feast. And he was kind of making fun of them in the description. Basically like, when they get together, they're always just talking about how much they love each other. And they're always talking about eating this dead guy's body and blood. So I'm pretty sure they're cannibals, but they're super nice. Like, you definitely want one to move in next door because they're so ethical and so nice, and they'll give you the shirt off their back. But they, I think they eat people. I don't know. Like, like, this is, the ancient world was really confused. Like, why do they keep talking about this? And over the centuries of church history, 2,000 years later, we have kind of this evangelical Christian version of communion where once a month, you know, we take it by intinction and there's bread and we downgraded the, the wine into juice, you know, to be inclusive for everybody. And, and um, we dip the, the bread and the wine and the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And sometimes we don't even really think about what that means. And if you come from a higher church tradition, you have that every uh, mass because it's at the center of the mass. So I think they're probably a little closer to the, the spirit of this tradition, of this commandment. Jesus said, do this. Did you ever wonder why that was at the center of koinonia? Because it is. I mean, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, again, Paul writing to this crazy Las Vegas church, he says this, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a koinonia in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break koinonia in the body of Christ? What? What in the world does this mean? Maybe this is why the seminary professor is like, don't do a word study. Please, don't do a word study. You'll bore people. You'll shrink the church. This is an exception. It's worth the word study because don't you see, koinonia means the privilege to provide needs for each other because we feel like everything is shared because it's like we're family. We're tight. It's more intimate than friendship. It's so powerful. It transcends all these boundaries and barriers and and most importantly, it's fueled and united by the koinonia we have with Christ. And how this was lived out was basically every time they gathered, they would have a communion service. No, actually, it wasn't as ornate as that. It was talking about the significance of the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in every meal. Kind of like how we pray before meals now. You know, we, dear God, thank you for this food. Bless it to our body. Thank you for the hands that prepared it in Jesus' name. So like we're giving a nod in every meal to, to God and his provision. They're giving a even more central nod in every meal, every gathering to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the ancient world didn't know what to make of that. Why would you talk about this dead dude? Because he didn't stay dead. And the fact that he didn't stay dead it's really significant. You see, if you think about the resurrection of the murdered son of God on a fairly regular basis, that will seep into your worldview. Because every time I eat, I'm reminded, wow, it's bad enough. The whole sin problem, the brokenness problem, and I'm contributing to that, by the way, it's bad enough that he had to die. That's kind of a serious thing. And it helps you take sin seriously. And you think, wow, there's like consequences for rebellion and broken relationships and being selfish and 
doing the wrong thing and sins of omission and sins of commission, that's really serious. And I should try to avoid that. I should try to live righteously and obey God and live in the patterns of activity that he wants me to live in. And if I think about the death of Christ as often as I eat, it's, it would bring a person, it would bring a kind of community into a, a reality of how serious sin is. But at the same time, if I'm thinking on the other side of the coin about the resurrection of Jesus, think about what that does when you're down. Gosh, things aren't going well at work. Oh, my marriage isn't going so well. All this health problem stressing me out. I don't know if I'm ever going to be a good parent. This is so hard. I just don't feel happy, and I'm not sure why. Whatever you're going with, if as often as you eat, you're thinking, he, he rose to life? He was dead for three days, and then he was no longer dead? And he said he's coming back for me? And he says that I can koinonia with him in resurrection? As in, when I die, I will not stay dead? That really does change the way you look at everything. Are you going through something really disappointing right now? This is a really depressing month for most Minnesotans. I mean, we just ran out of holiday energy and we're probably at the point where most of us have broken our New Year's resolutions. <laughs> right? I, I was all in on Whole30, and I did so good, I finished it day 14. Right? <laughs> I'm wholly free of that. <laughs> January 24th is when the credit card comes. Hopefully you were listening in the series, what I'm not doing for Christmas, and you didn't incur all that debt, but some of us did. Are you really down right now? Maybe you need the type of community that is described by this curious little word that the Christians took and reclaimed and rebranded. Maybe you need to be fueled and united by constantly thinking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tom and I, as we wrote this sermon, we were saying, okay, we really need a metaphor to bring this home. And, I, and th this is where I kick in, because that's kind of part of my, what I bring to the partnership. Ah, metaphor, all right, all right. Um, unit and combat, because, you know, you're all different, and you don't necessarily like each other at the beginning, but afterwards, you just die for each other. Tom said, no, you, you talk about the military too much. Don't do that. <laughs> all right, all right. That's not perfect. Aspen Grove. All the trees are interwoven. I burned like five minutes Googling this and stuff. He goes, ah, oh, that's overdone, the Aspens, yeah. Nice. Uh, what, what metaphor is there? I mean, well, here's, here's the problem. Some things in life, very few things, but some things in life are so beautiful and so good and worthwhile that metaphors detract. They don't add much because they, they, just, they just can't get there. God, God is a perfect example. There's so many metaphors for what God's love is like, but none of them on their own is adequate. This is why we're just given picture after picture and image after image. You, it's like no one metaphor would work. And then, and then he goes, all right, we, we don't have a metaphor. Um, and I said, well, uh, how about if we think of a real practical thing, something like um, something we could do in a meal, you know, to remind ourselves of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's essentially what was happening in the ancient world. And he goes, yeah, that's perfect. 
You work on the metaphor, Mike. I'll work on that. We both came up with goose eggs. We got nothing. Because it's hard. What, what do you do in the meal? Again, I mean, you, you could have a communion service in the middle of every meal. Maybe some of you will help with that. If, if the Lord lays something on your mind and you're like, what if we did this? Write an article, put it on Pinterest, put a little SEO optimization direct into our website, you know, help grow the church. No, but tell us, do tell us, because how valuable would it be to have a little mechanism, a little tradition where you could say, this is a simple little way that's not weird and won't, pe- won't make other people who aren't Christians think we're cannibals, but it will help us to remember that part of koinonia is being intimately and specially connected to Jesus's death and resurrection at all times. And when we lose that sense of connection to his death and resurrection, bad things happen because we start forgetting how serious the situation was meriting death. And so we don't live carefully or seriously. And when we lose that connection to the resurrection, we forget that we're eternal beings that will last forever, that our pain and our problems, though bad now, are temporary and insignificant, is an understatement in the long lens of eternity, and we will forget to live with a joyful anticipation for the life to come and bring that life here. So what could we do to insert in our gatherings? Well, one thing that we do do at Mercy Road is right there, we always have communion on the off Sundays that we don't do communion as a whole family. And, and I've taken some flack from that, and I fully understand. A lot of people who grew up in a more high church environment think, you know, you're not saying the words of institution. Well, the words of institution really were just the Apostle Paul writing to this wild church because they got so wild at one point where people are getting drunk on the communion wine. They're like hoarding all the wine. And some people who, you know, liked food too much were eating all the food. And then like, people didn't even get to participate in the, in the meal. And so what was intended to be thinking about the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ turned into a big sibling fight thing. And so Paul said, I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ what I deliver to you on the night that he was betrayed. Well, read the stuff before it, because the stuff before the words of institution that we read is, hey, quit getting drunk and quit eating all the food and start getting back to what it was always about, church, I know you're, you're new Christians, but koinonia is possible. And so we make that communion available. And during the worship set, you can go up with an individual, just yourself, and kind of read the words of institution to yourself quietly or just think about it. Or you could do it as a family. Or if you really prefer a pastor administering, and I get that, that's fine, then just go up to the table and just look at the bread and the wine, and just say, this is the point in the worship service that I remind my own heart, I need to be in koinonia with Jesus's death and resurrection. So with that in mind, this kind of community happens when we share truth, meals, prayers, and most importantly, we share the need for Jesus, our Savior. And then the big reveal, what is the definition of community? Well, I think I didn't make that slide which is kind of a funny one to lead out. Um, What is Christian community? That was a big, big buildup, kind of a letdown moment there. Um, It is on your, your handout. A contagious connection with Jesus that connects his followers to one another. What are we talking about? It's a contagious connection with Jesus. Contagious insofar as when you're connected to Jesus, it's hard not to share that. It's hard for people not to see a change in you. It's hard not to see more humility in your life because somebody had to die for you. 
It's hard not to see more hope in your life because death isn't going to keep you down. So why would life? And it's that contagious connection that you personally have with Jesus that connects you to me and to her and him. Even though we're different ages, different races, different backgrounds, maybe even speak different languages. I think more than anything right now in our cultural moment, people are hungry for this. Don't you think? I mean, it's kind of funny when you think we're the most affluent, wealthy, informed, connected, resourced generation that has ever existed on planet Earth. I mean, think about ancient kings and queens who had to pillage hundreds of villages to acquire their wealth and build their castles would look at your standard of living and they would have their jaw drop. I mean, it's crazy, right? Just the technological advances we have. You carry a little thing in your pocket called a smartphone that is more powerful than anything NASA had when they put a man on the moon. And you complain when it's like two months old, (laughs) when it doesn't work perfectly. You can eat blueberries in the middle of winter. If you don't like your Tempur-Pedic mattress, you can buy a better one. You can travel to the other side of the world in a few hours. You can talk to people anywhere instantly with perfect digital clarity. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And at the same time, no generation in history has had a higher suicide rate, depression rate, anxiety disorder rate, ever. What do they need? That wealth and affluence and entertainment and pleasure, power, sex can't get them? They need koinonia. They need a church with its light shining right on Jesus, being transformed by a contagious connection with Jesus Christ that connects every one of them together. Let's pray to be that church. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to do that. It's easy to talk about it. It's even somewhat easy to imagine it. And we long for it. It's hard to achieve it, God. Would you help us to grow more connected? Would you help us to experience all the shades of the meaning of this word, Lord? We pray for anyone who's profoundly lonely today. That they would sign up for our bread breaker meal where they can come and be in a home and share some koinonia. Or they would consider joining an existing small group or starting one or just starting with praying, saying, I'm, I'm lonely, God. Would you direct my steps? Lord, I pray for anyone who has a need, that their need would be matched with someone who has extra, who could meet that need. Lord, we, we just thank you most of all for this special connection we have with your death and resurrection. May we die to our sins, to self, to, to just to being our own little God. And would we rise again to an eternal life, a life centered on you and all that you are teaching us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.